Welcome to our Wednesday evening Bible class. Uh, we are going to be starting the book of Leviticus tonight. We'll just kind of summarize through the first seven chapters and then spend a little more time focusing on chapter 10. And I hope that'll become clear as to why as we, uh, as we continue through the class. But if you've been a part of our chronological study, you know that as we came to the book of Exodus, uh, a series of events have occurred that have set the stage for uh, continuation of their time at Mount Sinai and the development of this nation. And that is that God has brought them to Sinai. They've just been descendants of Abraham. They've just been people who were servants in Egypt and God brought them to Sinai where he's gonna make them a nation. And he does that by giving them a law. Uh, that law was founded upon the Ten Commandments. Uh, several events happened in the some eight and a half months that they are at the mountain initially, uh, having to do with the giving of the Ten Commandments and then Moses going up on the mountain and receiving the, uh, the more expanded version of what it means to actually follow those laws, uh, specifically as it related to not only their everyday life, but also their worship of God. And so there were details about how they were to worship God, and there were details about the priesthood and the responsibilities of the priesthood and the, the, the sanctification or setting aside them as being different, uh, even in the clothing that they wore in their work as a priest. Uh, and as you get to the end of chapter, uh, or the book of Exodus, you finally get to this place where all these details uh, that had to do with the building of the tabernacle and the items of worship and all of the holy items inside of the tabernacle were all completed and dedicated and and then you turn to the book of Leviticus and so here what you start to see is a lot of uh, a lot of the law what you've already heard from God in the book of Exodus given to Moses kind of expanded upon again only there seems to be an emphasis here toward the priesthood you know the tribe of Levi uh, they are the priesthood. The high priest comes from the descendants of Aaron. And so their details are more specific in their resp responsibilities and roles because not only are they approaching God for the people, but they have to teach this to the people and require the people to follow it. And so some of Leviticus obviously is repetitive, and, uh, and that's why we summarize these first seven chapters. But there are some things that we do want to highlight as we go through them and then we'll get into chapter 10 and start to set the stage for uh, what it mean, what it looks like. What does it look like to follow God or not follow God and the consequences of that, so. Yeah, um, the only thing I wanna point out is that to put it in perspective, prior to where we are today, the people of Israel did not have an organized religion. They had a relationship with God, they had a few rules and covenants that they were already given, but as far as what worship looked like, that hadn't been laid out yet. Starting where we are, God's going to start laying out the rules for worship and what that looks like. And then we get what we call Judaism from what we read today in the next couple weeks. Okay, chapter one. Uh, we're, we're dealing in these first seven chapters with the various offerings. Uh, chapter one, what we're dealing with here is the burnt offering. And the emphasis here that I see uh, is that this has to be a free will offering. Now, the law, you, you think about this law. Uh, that God has given. Law is not, uh, you know, a free will thought, right? If, if our government sets in place a law, well, it doesn't matter whether I want to follow it or not. It's a law. But in this relationship with God, in this covenant with God, in him selecting them to be his people, it, covenant is a significant word about this law. They could choose whether to follow it or not. That didn't change the law. That didn't change whether or not it was accepted to God, but they 
they had to choose to be in the covenant. And so as they're giving the instructions again in more detail about these sacrifices, it has to be a free will offering. It would not be by compulsion. And the same thing is true today. God will not force you to follow him. Uh, what you bring to God, your living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2, which is your life that you bring to God, it has to be offered willingly. You have a choice. And so God gave them a choice. They had to, they had to bring it if they're going to be in the covenant, but they had to willingly bring this to be in it. And so God now is starting to set a standard about worship. And this is going to follow through through the entire Bible. And that is when God's dealing with worship, he gives specifics. You know, God, we, we talk about what's authorized and what's not authorized. When God talks about worship, he gives specifics. So he shows you what is authorized. Are there expedients like where we worship? Yes. Uh, are there expedients like the time of day in which we worship? Yes. But the bottom line is when it comes to the actual acts of worship, God has authorized, meaning he has spoken in detail about what he wants from us. And that's what he does with this sacrifice. Every detail is given to man as to how they're to approach God. Yeah. The first thing I want to emphasize this idea of a free will offering is something that the Israelite people were already familiar with. When they were building the items that would go into the tabernacle, God asked them to give out of free will, and they did so out of abundance. And I think one of the reasons that God prepared it in such a way is so that they would understand what a free will offering is later on when they get rules like this and rules for other type of sacrifices. The other thing that I want to mention is, and maybe it's the youth minister in me, that this idea that worship always has to be done willingly. And I so often, I think back to my own child, I think back to childhood of people I know, and worship wasn't always presented that way to me. Worship was presented to me as a requirement. Worship was presented to me as a checklist. Worship was presented as something you do because you have to do it. And when you look at the text, both the Old and the New Testament, that's not what worship is. If you do, if you worship out of obligation, that's not worship to God. Our worship has to be done willingly with a pure heart and a pure mind. Every time we pray, sing praises, or study God's word, we have to do it sincerely and intentionally. Okay, chapter two. I won't uh, get into much detail in this chapter, uh, but this chapter is kind of uh, summarizing the grain offering. And I think the importance here in chapter two, again, is the fact that God has been incredibly detailed uh, and and that detail has to do with what he will and will not accept and all of it's going to come into play more and more as Israel moves forward in this relationship with God not only in the everyday actions but most especially as we're dealing with here in their worship yeah so starting in chapter 2 we start to see specifics on a lot of things where to some people it probably seemed very nitpicky where it seemed arbitrary, but God is requiring them to use unleavened bread here, we see, which is something that they will have to follow up into and through the New Testament, something we even follow today with the Lord's Supper. Um, another thing that I just think is a point of interest is when you look, discuss the idea of Cain and Abel, here we do see evidence that a grain offering is an acceptable offering in some sort of way, that in certain situations a grain offering is acceptable. So maybe it wasn't Cain's offering that was wrong, but the heart behind it. And actually, that's all I have. It's a short chapter. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right, chapter three. Uh, now we're dealing with a peace offering. And there's something that it's shown up in the first two chapters that I haven't mentioned yet, but it kind of shows up in a repeated way here in chapter three uh, in dealing with the peace offering, even in this short chapter. Uh, and that is that there is an emphasis shown in the fact that the offering that was to be brought was to be brought alive. Mm -hmm. 
It was to be brought alive, and then when it when it arrived at the tabernacle, then the priesthood would would kill the animal and then sacrifice the animal. And the, there's probably a lot of significance we could make out of that in that the fact that, and by the way, their hands were laid on it that was connecting it to the one doing the offering. Uh, and so by bringing it alive, you would be then sacrificing in a connective way. But I think the secondary issue there, and, and maybe I shouldn't say secondary, maybe it's actually the primary issue, is the fact that what God has always expected was their best. No matter what they gave, uh, no matter what the sacrifice was, whether it's grain or peace or, or sin offering, whatever it was, a first fruit offering, it always had to be the best. And so in this case, as uh, they're bringing their various sacrifices, uh, you know, you could, you could understand the temptation, maybe even the dilemma. If you had a flock and you were trying to bring an animal from that as a sacrifice, and you know, right before you had to sacrifice, one of those animals died, would not the temptation be to take that animal that you had already lost, that was no longer useful to you, and then take it to sacrifice for God? And that's not giving God something of value to you that is your best. And so the requirement was they had to bring something that's alive and that, that living sacrifice would be brought and would be slain and used uh, in the worship to God. As we see here in chapter three and something we'll see in probably every single chapter in the book of Leviticus is that God doesn't accept shortcuts. And the reason for that is the sacrifice has to cost you something. By definition, when you sacrifice to God, you are giving up something that is useful to you. I mean, it's in the Word, right? It's, right. it's yes. the definition of sacrifice. And in the same way, when we sacrifice ourselves, or our time, our effort, and money to God, it has to be something that costs us something in return. All right, chapter 4 is an interesting chapter. I won't spend much time there. It's kind of a long chapter, but I won't spend much time there. But I do want to highlight this. Uh, you know, when God gave this law, it's... This is a burdensome law, and these are imperfect people. And so no matter how sincere their hearts, no matter how sincere their intentions, no matter what their, desire, their desires are, they're not going to be perfect. I mean, why would God give them uh, regulations and requirements for a sin offering if he already, if he expected that they were never going to sin? You can't, why would you need a sin offering if you didn't sin? <laughs> And so God knew the failures that would come. Uh, and some of those failures would be because, well, the law is a lot to carry, and sometimes people just mess up. And so here in chapter 4, he's dealing with unintentional uh, sins, you know, things that people didn't intend to turn away from God. It's not that they are in rebellion. It's not that they are cold-hearted or hard-hearted or whatever. It's just that, that they've, they've messed up. And there are details in there about specific classes of people. It's not just, you know, those who are weaker, or it's not just those who are who struggle more. It's even the leaders of the nation sometimes don't do what they're supposed to do. And so God sets forth the requirements of here's how you sacrifice to, to overcome those unintentional sins. Yeah, we see here that God is so holy, God is so pure, God is so sanctified that he even can associate with those who sin even if they have the best intentions, even if they don't know that they're sinning. In the same way, that is true for us today. Okay, chapter 5. Uh, interesting here is here he's doing again, talking again about the unintentional sins, but there's something that's added here further, and that's the unknown sin. <laughs> See, sometimes, sometimes we do things that we don't even know is a problem. Can you imagine somebody 
uh, decided they want to become a Christian, but they were at this place where they said, well, I just can't do it until I know everything about God's word and everything that I need to do to follow him and everything that I'll ever face and deal with. Then I'll become a Christian. If they took that attitude, they'd never become a Christian. You know, you go through the book of Acts and you see the history of the early growth of the church and you see so many accounts where people heard the gospel and asked the question, what do we need to do about this? That's a paraphrase, obviously. What can I do to, about this? And they were told how to obey the gospel and they did it and they didn't have a clue what that meant as far as the long-term implications of actions that have been in their lives for, for probably their whole life. Those were things they would learn and change as they grew. And so there are some things that are not only unintentional, but unknown in the, in the sins that we commit before God. And so we have a sin here uh, that we're dealing with that they don't know about. It's something they've committed that's wrong. And what we see here is the difference in their hearts. You know, uh, when, when it's pointed out to them that what they're doing is wrong, one who has a good heart fixes it. And they sacrifice to God. And the same thing is true today, you know. Uh, we, we're living in a world where to have to admit you're wrong, that's just not acceptable, right? We'll defend ourselves no matter what we have to do just to prove that we weren't wrong, even when we were wrong. You know, it wasn't our fault. Somebody else made us do it, or my, the way I was raised made me do it, or, you know, the influence of my spouse made me do it. It wasn't my fault. Well, these people are told, look, if you have an unknown, unintentional sin, there's a way back to God. But the way starts with you recognizing when it's pointed out to you that you've been wrong, and then you can approach God and you can be forgiven. Chapter 5 here divides those who commit unintentional sins into two groups. One camp repents of their sin when they learn it is wrong, and the other doesn't. And to me, this reflects back to our story of the golden calf, where when they, Moses came down from the mountain and they were dealing with the chaos that ensued, a group of people came and a group of people did not repent. And people who did not repent had to pay the ultimate cost with their life. And I think you can reflect that back here to Leviticus 5. You can reflect that again in the New Testament and see that when we sin, we are obligated to then repent of it and those who don't have a price to pay. Okay, chapter 6. Now, here we've kind of changed a little bit of our direction. Uh, if you remember the Ten Commandments, they started with our obligations toward God. Well, Israel's obligations toward God. But then they kind of molded over into another direction, and that was obligations toward each other. And, and that's because the way that we treat each other also is reflected in our relationship with God. Uh, and our relationship with God is reflected in the way that we treat each other. And so as you get into chapter 6, there's more information about these various offerings, but there's also information about various sins. And in this regard, it has to do with what happens to somebody else. When my actions cause problems, if I'm one of these Israelites, when my actions cause problems with somebody else, cause harm to somebody else, or cause loss to somebody else, then my responsibility is not only to God. I do have a responsibility to sacrifice before God for forgiveness, but I also have a responsibility of this, this is a principle that's established, restitution. And the same thing is true today, restitution. Repentance requires restitution where it's possible. If, if I'm in a situation, as an example, where I am, uh, uh, you know, I, I go out and I steal something. I go out and I steal a car. And then uh, later on, uh, I find out, I, well, I, I need to become a Christian. But I learned that, well, stealing's wrong. And here I am driving this car that I've stolen. Well, restitution says I've got to make that right. 
I've got to do what's necessary to make that right. That's what repentance means. And so this chapter, chapter 6, deals with in order to sacrifice for, to God and that sacrifice to be accepted, then it has to be, it has to be made right between those who have been harmed as well. Yeah. I want to focus here on the idea of our obligation to one another because this is something that we started realizing in the Ten Commandments. It is emphasized here in chapter 6, but it carries on to us as Christians in the New Testament as well. When the Pharisees ask Jesus what are the most important commandments, he starts with love God, but follows closely with love thy neighbor as yourself. And I think one of the, the reason he pairs those two together is the way that we show our love to God is reflected in the way that we show our love to each other. So here, Leviticus 6, God is making the same exact point as to be honorable to me, to be holy in my eyes, you have to treat each other fairly as well. Okay, chapter 7. Uh, we deal with the trespass offering and the peace offering again, a little more details given about those specific sacrifices. I'm not going to go into those, but I do want to read just the last two verses. Leviticus chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 37 and 38. He says, this is the law of the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the consecrations, and the sacrifice of the peace offering, which the Lord commanded Moses on Mount Sinai on the day when he commanded the children of Israel to offer their offerings to the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. So those two verses are kind of a summary of everything that we've talked about up to this point, in that these seven chapters are giving details about these various sacrifices that they were supposed to offer God. And I think the significance of it happening at this place is because what we're going to see as we move forward is what that looks like in life. You know, I think that's a portion of why the Old Testament is recorded for us. Paul would tell us that these things were written for our learning, you know, and I get from that 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 means I can read about faith, but I can see it in the examples that are in the Old Testament, or I can see the lack of it. And so mm -hmm. these, these, these illustrate to me even some of the principles that are found and the commands that are found in the New Testament. So as we finish in chapter 7 there, I think he summarizes and he says, he, he kind of is setting the stage for what's going to go forward. And we're going to see these examples of people who did what they were supposed to do. They had the, the hearts that Rich was talking about of repentance and right. And then we're going to see examples of those who failed uh, and the consequences of those actions. Yeah. Um, chapter 7 ends with this is what everything is supposed to look like. This is the ideal way that this will play out. And as we continue, especially as we start chapter 10 in just a moment, we see what happens when it doesn't play out that way. Okay, and we're, we're not going to cover 8 and 9, but they deal with the priesthood and the offerings for the priesthood and getting everything established. And that kind of connects with that summary of these sacrifices because it brings us to chapter 10, uh, which is dealing with the sin, the first recorded sin that we have in the priesthood uh, in worship to God and the actions uh, or the consequences of that. So chapter 10 and verse 1. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Now there's several things to bring out and I don't want to go in too great depth here and take all of our time but we know who these individuals are they're the sons of Aaron we have seen them earlier there are four sons that are named who have been designated as the beginning of this priesthood uh, they have been set aside to roles they have been uh, there have been a ceremonial things that have happened at God's direction that they had to go through in order to fulfill these roles 
but there's a continuation of responsibility in their activities. And one of those had to do with the burning of incense. You remember it was this altar of incense was right before the veil that entered into the most holy place. And that incense was to be born, born, burned morning and evening. And God told them specifically the, the ingredients of the incense. And he told them specifically about the fire that was to be used. And so when the text tells us here that they offered strange fire that God did not talk about, God did not have to tell them not to offer any fire in the world because he told them what fire he wanted them to offer. And what they did in this account is, we'll get to why here in a few minutes, uh, but what they did in this account is they offered fire that did not come from the source that God had told them to offer. And the consequence immediate of that action was, well, they died. So here we see Nadab and Abihu doing their job. They are performing the ceremonies that they're supposed to do, except for they're doing it at their own convenience. Instead of following God's strict and laid out commandments, they decide to switch it up in a way that benefits them. This would be the same as if we looked at the commandment to partake of the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, and we see what is supposed to be used as the Lord's Supper, but we say it would be more convenient to use Diet Coke and cinnamon rolls. Easier. Easier, yeah. Okay, chapter 10, verses 2 and 3 now. Here's the consequence. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. So the immediate action is these men died. They died. We had, we had seen in the commands on how to build the tabernacle and everything that went along with it, the importance of it all, because if they didn't, they were going to die. And these people are the example that it happened. They didn't do it God's way, and they died. So Aaron lost his sons. But as it is proclaimed to him what has happened to his sons, uh, it's also proclaimed to him as why. And God said, I will be regarded as holy. You know what designates, what decides what is holy and what is not holy? God. He's the one that says what's holy and what's not. In fact, God's the one that makes something holy or does not. Like, for example, Moses is standing before the burning bush on the top of this very mountain, Mount Sinai. And God says, take your shoes off. You're on holy ground. And it's the same ground he's been walking on for 40 years. But it's different today because God being there and he designated it as holy. So this fire that they were supposed to offer, though elementally is no different than any other fire, by the fact that God designated it as holy meant it was acceptable and anything else was just not holy. And so the consequences of their actions are they die and Aaron is, is told why. Yeah, I love the uh, constant illustration of fire we see both in the Old and the New Testament. Because when you think of how they viewed fire, fire was one dangerous. If a fire got out of control, it could go on almost endlessly. But fire also provided them food. It was a source of life. Fire also purified. We already know that they understand the idea of purifying metals from when they made the golden calf and melting them down. Fire is pure. So we see that they're devoured by fire. We see that God is providing, showing them both his power and that he is pure. Okay, let's go to verses 4 through 7. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Azael, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. So they went near and carried them by their tunics out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not uncover your heads, nor tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the people. 
But let your brethren, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning which the Lord has kindled. You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. For the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. Now I think the significance here, and there's actually a couple things that I would highlight. Uh, one of them is uh, that Aaron is staying true even though his own family has turned away from God and suffered the consequences. He's staying true, right? He's not displaying anger with God uh, for the consequences. He is not, uh, he's not justifying. He's not arguing. He's just living with it. But God, it's interesting to me that God tells him not to mourn. And that sounds odd because when you lose, you mourn, right? I mean, in fact, didn't Jesus himself mourn at the death of Lazarus? I know that's not the same event, but it was because he lost, right? Even though he knew what was about to happen, he still mourned at the loss. And so it seems there must be something significant about the fact that God told him not to mourn here. It's not that he told the nation not to mourn. He told Aaron and his sons. And I think in the text what we're being told there is it's because they have a job to do. All of the people here are supposed to be sacrificed for, not as a group, but individually even. Tons and tons of sacrifices have to occur. And if Aaron and his sons take time off to mourn even, the people suffer. So they have a job to do. So he says, let the nation mourn for what has happened here, but you keep doing your job. Don't make this about you. They sinned, they failed, not you. Now you keep doing the job that you're supposed to be doing. What we see here is the burden of leadership. That because of the role that Aaron and his family was in, they had a job to do something they had to accomplish, and they had an appearance to keep up. If they started mourning and tearing of their clothes and weeping and wailing, it may appear to some, although not necessarily true, that Aaron and his family were upset with the actions of God. And they couldn't allow that appearance to occur. They couldn't allow that type of doubt to start filling the camp. So because of Aaron's role, his family's role, their roles as leaders, they had to deal with it on their own time and without showing others. All right, verses 8 through 11. Then the Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or intoxicating drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, that you may distinguish between holy and unholy, and between unclean and clean, and that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. Now that seems to be almost out of place unless you take into consideration what God is giving us is the answer as to what contributed to the failure of Nadab and Abihu. They were drunk. They went in to offer this worship to God in an intoxicated state. And what the intoxication did to them is it, it eliminated their restraint. It in, in, a, in a sober-minded uh, setting, they probably wouldn't have used the wrong fire. And in fact, I think this wasn't the first time they sacrificed. You know, these are activities that have been going on daily, so they've done it right over and over and over and over again. But when they came into this tabernacle in an intoxicated state, one of them or both of them at some point said, ah, let's take the shortcut. And they got the easy fire, it won't matter anyway, and they died. And so as the leaders in worship of God's people, Aaron and his sons are told, look, you've got to refrain from this. You cannot go before God in an intoxicated way. And the reason is there because your restraints are gone. You can't tell the difference between what's holy and unholy. You can't tell the difference between what's clean and unclean. You've got to keep your mind. 
Because you can't do it yourself or teach the people if you don't have your own mind under control. Yeah. In the simplest form here, we see the commandment of don't drink on the job, which makes sense. That shouldn't have to be said. <laughs> it shouldn't have to be said. You're but right. the underlying explanation here is a lot more than that. It's this idea that your mind, when you worship, when you um, experience God, when you worship God, you have to be pure and sober. And I think we can carry this on, not just to drugs and alcohol, but from everything that when we yeah. worship God, when we bring ourselves to God and try to sing praises to him, our heart and mind have to be pure, not just from substances, but from distractions, from worry, doubt, guilt. God is commanding everything of us. And anything that gets in the way, one, leads to decisions that shouldn't be made, and two, isn't the worship that God commands. Yeah. Okay, verses 12 through 15. And then Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons who were left, Take the grain offering that remains of the offerings made by fire to the Lord, and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it's most holy. And you shall eat it in a holy place, because it's your due and your son's due of the sacrifices made by fire to the Lord. So I have been, for so I have been commanded. And the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering you shall eat in a clean place, you, your sons, and your daughters with you, for they are your due and your son's due which are given from the sacrifices of peace offerings of the children of Israel, the thigh of the heave offering and the breast of the wave offering they shall bring with the offerings of fat made by fire to offer as a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you by a statute forever as the Lord has commanded. Now, part of the sacrifices, not all of them, but there were different sacrifices and different pieces of some sacrifices that were not burnt up and consumed to God, but rather were given to the priesthood for their own sustenance. But the thing is, when you've gone through tragedy, when you're in a state of mourning, you don't usually take care of yourself. You know, in fact, most of the time, mourning is connected in some way with some type of fasting. And so it would be natural for Aaron and his sons, even though they continue to have all this responsibility uh, as the priesthood, uh, all the weight of it or the stress of it and the physical activity of it, it would be natural for them in this state of sadness to not take care of themselves. And so God says, don't forget, you've got a job to do and it's not just about you, it's about me too. You know, the eating of the sacrifices wasn't just to keep them going, it was because they were God's representative to the people and so God wanted them to keep going to take care of themselves. And so they're told, they're told continue to serve God in worship and continue to take care of yourself. Yeah, here we see this example that if you can't take care of yourself, you cannot successfully serve God. And I think as a culture, we kind of neglect this idea, not in practice, but in thought. We think of building up of ourselves as useless or vain or not important. But also we have to recognize that it's important if we wanna be successful in our jobs as Christians that we have to first get ourselves to a place where we are comfortable, both physically and spiritually, before we can then serve God and do our job. Okay, verses 16 through 20. Then Moses diligently made inquiry about the goat of the sin offering, and there it was burned up, and he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in a holy place, since it is most holy, and God has given it to you to bear the guilt of the congregation, to make atonement for them before the Lord? See, its blood was not brought inside the holy place. Indeed, you should have eaten it in a holy place as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Look, this day they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and such things have befallen me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been accepted in the sight of the Lord? So when Moses heard that, he was 
content. Now this is interesting because the two sons of Aaron that we started this chapter with sinned intentionally. They were drunk and they made a bad choice. But the two sons that are remaining have also sinned. They have not consumed the sacrifice the way that they were supposed to. And when this information comes up, Aaron doesn't excuse it, but he does explain what happened. And what happened is they went through all the sacrifices and everything, and then all of a sudden their sons died. Tragedy hit. And in tragedy, they had sinned unknowingly. They had just set this aside for a little bit to handle something else, and God says, you shouldn't have set it aside. Moses says, you shouldn't have set it aside. And Aaron says, you're right. We messed up. Here's why. And obviously they fixed it because the other two brothers died and these two brothers did not. And that's what we dealt with in those first seven chapters. You know, they sinned. All of us sin. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So if everybody has sinned, why will some be lost and some not be lost? And the answer is because some will turn back to God when their sin is recognized, admitted to, and repented of, and some will not. These individuals remain in the service of God. Yeah, what we see here is just, again, further proof that God is both just and holy, that the way he treats individual sins is, is on an individual basis. That deliberate sin without repentance, God punishes directly. But this sin, this unknowing sin that is then followed by repentance, something that is where they fix it, God rewards them by not punishing them. And I think that is an application that applies both to the New and Old Testament, both to Jews and Christians and ourselves today. Okay, we've come to the conclusion of tonight's class. Uh, I do want to point out, uh, if things go as planned, and we, we're living in the age of COVID-19, so not a lot of things go according to plan, but if things go according to plan, uh, next Wednesday night, instead of having a recorded lesson like this one, uh, we will be having uh, the regular class here at the church building, and uh, I shouldn't point when you have a black screen that's an auto, <laughs> that's a living room, right? We'll be at the church building, and our classes will be normal again, and then we'll be live streaming them through the internet for those who are unable to get out or those who just need the lesson or want to study in the lesson with us. So that'll start at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Florida Time, uh, next Wednesday night, if things go as planned. Uh, hopefully we'll have some announcements about that coming out on Facebook as we get closer to it so those who want to listen will know uh, better the details of that. But we certainly appreciate you joining us tonight and we'll pick up there uh, next week. Let's close with a prayer. Dear Lord, our Father, we're so thankful for all that you have blessed us with. We thank you for continuing to give us life so that we can look into your word. We're so thankful for this gift, which is your word, the Bible, God, that we can see examples of how things should be performed and how things have, what happens when we don't follow accordingly. We ask you be with us always, that we look at the examples of your scripture, that we see how people have succeeded and failed in following you, and we can place ourselves there in those situations to better understand our relationship with you and our responsibility to you, God. We ask that you be with us always, that we can take the knowledge that we gain through studying to the outside world to bring people closer to you.